Hey guys, let me tell you about Fable Beard Company. As you know, they're the official beard company of the American History Podcast. Are you a manly man with a beard that needs some help? Maybe you're a lady who has a beard man in your life. If that's the case, I have something you're going to love. Fable Beard Company has some amazing beard products to help soften your beard and hydrate it so it's the best beard you could possibly have. Now, when it comes to beard products, as you know, I'm a huge fan of beard oils and butters that are infused with CBD. Currently, I'm using the CBD-infused beard conditioner and oil known as the Baker. This particular oil is complete with a fantastic scent profile and the quality only Fable can deliver. Each bottle contains 50 milligrams of CO2-expressed full-spectrum CBD oil. Oh, and the scent profile? It's, it's fresh-baked pastry, warm vanilla sugar, and a hint of cinnamon spice. Believe me, gentlemen, the wife or the girlfriend is going to love it. Head over to Fable Beard Company right now and use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off the entire order. That's right, 15% off the entire order for listeners of this show. Now, if CBD isn't your thing, then head over to fablebeardco.com and check out all of their oils and butters, as well as beard conditioners and even products for women that don't have CBD in them. The coupon code works over there as well. I particularly enjoy the non-CBD products known as the distiller. The scent profile for these bad boys is creamy vanilla, rich mold spices, aged bourbon, and deep barrel woods. And remember, use the coupon code SEAN15 to get 15% off each and every order. Now, on with the show. The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 28, The Causes of the Great Depression. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, welcome to the show. I hope you all are enjoying these episodes as much as I am enjoying creating them. Amazingly, we're close to the end of season three, believe it or not, and production on season four has already started. Now, before we get to the actual episode, if you're enjoying this and you'd like to support us, help keep the lights on, all that good stuff, there's a couple of ways for you to do that. First, head over to the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can sign up for our email list and you can use the linked sources to shop on Amazon. If you do the latter, we will get some pennies thrown at us from Amazon, and it won't cost you a thing. Now, if you'd prefer to directly support us, you can purchase some of the products from Fable Beard Company. I use their products on my beard, and I highly recommend them. You can also join the Patreon group. For as little as $5 a month, you'll get access to the show without commercials, and you'll get the episodes early. You also have access to bonus episodes found nowhere else, including the show 1983, the year the world almost ended, and a special episode called Crackers, Rednecks, and Donald Trump. That's probably worth the price of admission alone. So head over to patreon.com slash American History. Also, just a quick shout out to some of our recent new members, Espen and John. Thank you so much for your kind support, really. It means a lot to me. Your support and that of all of the Patreons is really making a difference, especially with the sources needed for Season 4. The song of the week this week is Al Jolson singing Brother Can You Spare a Dime. We'll see you on the other side. They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mob When there was earth to plow or guns to bear I was always there right on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream with peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line? 
just waiting for bread. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun, brick, mortar, and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, he will look swell, full of that Yankee doodle dum Half a million boots went marching through hell, and I was a kid with a drum. Hey, don't you remember? They called me Al. It was Al. Al all the time. Say, hey, don't you remember? I'm your pal. Brother, can you spare a dime? All right, so let's get started. The causes of the Great Depression are still argued about by professional historians. So what we're going to do is start off with the traditional interpretation, and then we'll look at another argument, one that I think is the best explanation. So first, the orthodox interpretation. This is one that puts the stock market crash as the immediate cause of the Depression. However, and we discussed this last time, there's no direct connection between the one and the other. In fact, and again, we spoke about this last time, the economy did not tank right away, and the stock market itself had gone up by the spring of 1930. Truly, there are few universally agreed upon causes of the Depression. This is one of those areas in history where the professionals really do disagree. Furthermore, the recession actually began in August 1929, two months before the stock market crashed. This was, according to the mainstream explanation, due to the contractionary policies of the Federal Reserve as it tried to curb overspeculation in stocks. Of course, this is problematic as it assumes that somehow the government bureaucrats have a better understanding of financial markets than the actual professionals do. It also, if you think about it, assumes that bureaucrats care more about the investors' money than the actual investors themselves. Now, having said that, the economy did not move from recession into a major depression until December of 1930, after several major banks collapsed. The orthodox interpretation really doesn't account for these issues. Some economists placed the start of the International Depression as late as 1931, when certain major European banks collapsed. So again, there's some major issues with the traditional narrative. Now at this point, you're probably wondering, what was the cause? If the orthodox narrative, the one which you learn in high school, is wrong, then what caused it? My argument is that the one institution you rarely hear about, if ever, uh, when it comes to the economic crises, the Federal Reserve is the culprit. Now, I hear you. Warswick's a historian. He's not an economist. And you're right. But I did stay in a Holiday Inn last night. All right. Sorry, bad joke. Um, I couldn't help it. Um, I may not have a degree in economics, but I've studied it for quite a while now. And there's a body of literature, and it's growing, that does identify the Fed as the culprit. Now, before I get into this in more depth, um, I want to be sure that I've destroyed the rest of the usual culprits that are identified as having caused the Great Depression, and then I'll revisit Hoover quickly as a reminder of what he did, and then we're going to do a deep dive into the answer, which is from the Austrian school. All right, so we've already spent time with the so-called short-term cause, often put forward by the orthodox narrative. But what about the long-term causes? First, they often point out that there were weak industries in the 1920s. 
But if they were weak throughout the decade, why was the economy booming? They point out things like the cotton industry was being affected by the rise of synthetic materials and the railroad industry was impacted by the automobile and the airplane. And they point out that railroad passenger miles declined 28% between 1922 and 1927. But why the delay until 1930 before the economy goes into a depression? Well, they don't say. Now, another one is the coal industry, which saw a decline in the face of the electrical, oil, and chemical industries. But again, none of this explains why the depression lasted for over a decade, nor does it feel right. And by that, I mean it just feels off, like the orthodox school is just spitballing possibilities out there. Then we get the argument that the farm industry saw a decline in the aftermath of World War I and the fact that there was a drop in demand from Europe. Tied into this is the idea that government refused price supports for farmers in the 1920s. But again, then why was the economy flying up until the end of the decade? It took nine years or more to finally crash the economy. Furthermore, as we saw earlier in the season, farming was having major issues since the latter part of the 19th century. What was happening is that it was no longer taking a ton of farmers to feed the nation. Innovations like mechanized farm tools, railroads, and refrigeration all meant that more food could be produced with less people farming. And if the government was not helping to prop up prices, then why did it take so long to crash the economy? Now, another answer that's often put forward is the idea of overproduction. But this is too simplistic. Overproduction of what? Consumer goods? If that's the case, then why didn't the price mechanism work to clear the market? In other words, if you get overproduction of, say, a widget, the price should fall. You will also get manufacturers who then exit the market in widgets. They're going to stop producing them as their profits disappear. You also hear that consumers didn't have enough money to purchase the products being produced. So demand should drop. If demand weakens, then the price should fall as well, and this would clear the market. Again, all of this feels like it's half-baked, and it isn't convincing if you just apply a bit of logic. Now, another one is income inequality. This is the one that has some major assumptions, but let's go ahead and look at it. The story goes that 5% of the population received 30% of the total income. But again, the economy was booming in the 1920s. So why did things suddenly go off the rails? This is also one that assumes there's a preferred distribution of income. Now, this reeks of Marxist criticisms of capitalism. And I'm not one to just simply dismiss something due to the fact that it came from Marxists. I do think they have a point when it comes to classes in society. But you've always had the top percentage owning more than the bottom percentage. This is nothing new. So this doesn't really explain the problem of the late 1920s and 1930s. Now, the last of the typical explanations is that the banking system was unsound. If we accept that, then why was it unsound? It was said that in the 19th century, the banking system was unsound unless you had the creation of the Federal Reserve. And yet, within a decade and a half of the creation of the central bank, we get the deepest and longest depression in U.S. history. I will say, and I mentioned this in one of the earlier episodes, that there were issues with banking law in the United States, specifically the idea that the banks had to be local. If you could only have branches in the local area, then you were much more susceptible to fluctuations in the market. Diversification, it is really a good thing. All right, so let us look at what I believe to be the correct answer as to what caused the Depression and how we could have ended it far earlier. The Austrian school theory is applied to the Great Depression is best expressed in the book America's Great Depression by Austrian economist Marianne Rothbard. But there are other economists who subscribe to this explanation, such as Dr. Robert Murphy and historians such as Thomas E. Woods and others. Now, I should mention that some of this will be economic theory, but you really need the theoretical framework provided by econ economics 
to understand what was happening. You can't just simply look at statistics and have an explanation jump out at you. Now, the first thing we need to talk about is the difference between the business cycle and business fluctuations. Now, because people's taste changes, um, we get business fluctuations all the time. Entrepreneurs are in the business of forecasting market changes, but even the best of them get it wrong from time to time. Think of the late 1970s and the early 1980s. Blockbuster Video was a major company, and they hit on the idea of video rentals in the mid-1980s, just as the boom in the sale and the production of ECRs was gaining steam. However, by the 2000s, things were changing. You had the drop in prices for both videos in the 90s and then DVDs, as well as the rise of Netflix DVD rental service in the 2000s, and then you had the rise of smartphones coupled with high-speed internet. Boom. Blockbuster doesn't change its business model, and now they're all but gone. This is fairly normal. In other words, changes are a constant in the economy. Some sectors are rising, some are falling, some are stagnant. Consumer tastes are shifting. The changes in the labor force, be it the size of the force, the quality of the force, or even the location, all of these things are constantly changing. So what I'm getting at is the idea that business or even the economy should be stable is a ludicrous idea. As Rothbard notes, quote, to stabilize and iron out, these fluctuations would, in effect, eradicate any rational productive activity, end quote. There will be fluctuations all the time. Perhaps this year travel is down, but computers are up. Or maybe it's vice versa. Who knows? The problem isn't this normal fluctuation in business. The problem is the general boom and bust that takes place throughout the economy. Why is it that there's a sudden cluster of errors throughout the economy or across different industries? Why is it that entrepreneurs, the very people who've been chosen by the market for their excellent ability to meet demands of said market, suddenly they're all wrong? Rothbard notes, quote, The market provides a training ground for the reward and expansion of successful, far-sighted entrepreneurs and the weeding out of inefficient businessmen, end quote. As we said a moment ago, while it isn't unusual for there to be fluctuations in one region or one industry, there is something wrong when all of the businessmen in the country make errors all together, all at once. So why all of them all at once? And why this time? Why at this point? Another problem is the fact that the capital goods or the higher order stages fluctuate more than the consumer goods industries. Those areas expand much more quickly than the consumer goods, and they are the ones that feel the bust more. All right, so first let's talk about the stages of production, the so-called higher order goods. Those are the ones which are furthest away from the consumer, while the lower order goods those are the ones closest to the consumer. First, the higher order stage goods, those are those which are used in, in the early stages of production. So this is something like mining, harvesting, construction, things like that. The latter stages or the lower orders are those which are the ones closest to the consumer. So think of the distribution um, at the point at which the good is placed on the shelf to be sold. You know, Walmart, that's the lower stage. It's the higher stages of production that we saw the most significant in, uh, drop in production and the worst of the depression. In businesses that catered to the lower stages of production, the depression was not as deep and it did not have um, the effect that it had, say, on the mining industry or the construction industry. The closer the industry was or is to the consumer, the less affected it tends to be. For example, the shirt making industry. You might cut back on how many shirts you purchase in a year, but you still need shirts. Or maybe a better example would be toothbrushes. You still have to purchase a toothbrush even if the economy is in the toilet. So I've not been overt, but so far we've covered two of the three aspects of all of this. First, we saw how suddenly those usually good at forecasting the market all fail. And then 
we looked at how the failure tends to be more dramatic in the capital goods industries. The third aspect of every boom that we need to examine or explain is the increase in the quantity of money in the economy. What does that do? And why is it that, in the bust, the money supply falls? Now, if the economy were truly free, and despite those who say otherwise, we do not live in a free market economy, there would be no cluster of errors. Why? Because the boom-bust cycle is generated by the expansion of the money supply. This intervention by government, specifically the central bank, is what causes the problem. As Rothbard notes, quote, The proportion of consumption to saving or investment is determined by people's time preference, the degree to which they prefer present to future satisfaction. The less they prefer them in the present, the lower will be their time preference rate, and the lower, therefore, will be the pure interest rate, which is determined by the time preferences of the individuals in society. All of this means that people are saving more. They prefer to delay their satisfaction. This then leads up to a buildup of capital, and as Rothbard stated, the interest rate, or rates, will naturally be lowered. Why? Because banks have more money to lend, thanks to the fact that consumers are saving more. Now, this is important. Naturally lower interest rates tell businesses that you prefer to wait to make your purchases, so they can then use resources to invest in long-term projects. Remember, we live in a world of scarcity. If resources are being used to produce goods for today, they can't be also used for, say, R&D or to create a new factory. And just a small change in the interest rate can make a huge difference when one considers the fact that many businesses will take out long-term loans to build a factory or something like that. I mean, just think of your home loan. Just a change in the interest rate of half a percentage point, you know, let's say from 5 to 4.5%, and you're talking, let's say, a $200,000 loan spread out over 30 years, that's a significant amount of money that you could save. Now, imagine you're a business that's thinking about building a new factory, how many millions of dollars that would cost. If that's a loan, and you're talking just a few percentage points, it's a huge, huge difference. However, this is not the only way to lower interest rates. What happens if the banks decide to print more money? Or if the central bank, in the case of the U.S., that's the Federal Reserve, um, and then they loan it to businesses? This new money enters the country through the banking system, so they're the ones who benefit. It looks like people are saving more, and that this is what's causing the rates to drop. But it's not the case. Entrepreneurs, however, they're tricked into thinking that the supply of saved funds is greater than it really is. They start to invest in long-term projects. Here, here's Rothbard once again. Quote, Businessmen, in short, are misled by the bank inflation into believing that the supply of saved funds is greater than it really is. Now, when funds, uh, saved funds increase, businessmen invest in longer processes of production i.e. the capital structure is lengthened, especially in the higher orders, those most remote from the consumer, end quote. These companies or businesses then take that money and they all start bidding on capital goods and perhaps even land and labor. This then stimulates a shift of investment from consumer goods industries to capital goods industries. In other words, more mining, more factory construction. Steel companies receive orders to produce more steel. Maybe a sports team decides to build that new stadium. If... And it's a big if, this were all happening naturally, then all well and good. However, it has not occurred naturally. There is no change, in our example, in consumer preferences. They are not saving more money. They still want to buy things now. So consumers and businesses are all competing for resources. That means that they're bidding up the prices. This percolates downward. Truly, it trickles down to, steal the phrase, 
to affect wages, rents, and so forth. Wages increase. Rents start to move up. The cost of everything starts to increase. People rush out to spend their money in the old consumption investment ratio. In other words, consumers are forcing the previously mentioned shift from long-term projects or from higher order back to lower order. The capital goods industries find they were mistaken. There was no demand for more mines, more steel. The eminent economist Ludwig von Mises likened it to a mason who thought he had X number of bricks to complete a project, only to discover he was mistaken. He has far less. So, what to do? He can try to complete the project with what he has, or he can liquidate it. Now, one of the things that you'll hear as an explanation of the Depression is the idea of underconsumption. Heck, you even hear that today. Politicians, probably taking their cues from bankers at the Fed, will say they need to stimulate spending on the part of consumers. This is the excuse for the Federal Reserve to print more money. But the problem is that, as we know, the Depression hits the higher stages of production hardest. Consumer goods industries see a drop in demand, but nowhere near what you would see in, say, construction, mining, that sort of thing. Now, Rothbard says it best when he says, quote, Businessmen were misled by bank credit inflation to invest too much in higher-order capital goods, which could only be prosperously sustained through lower time preferences and greater savings and investment. As soon as the inflation trickles down to the masses, then the old preferences are reestablished and business investment in the higher orders are seen to have been wasteful. Businessmen were led to this error by credit expansion, and it's tampering with the free market rate of interest, end quote. Hey guys, are you enjoying this episode on history and economics? Are you looking to take your learning to the next level? Well, the next level of the American History Podcast can be found at Liberty Classroom. This site is awesome, and it's perfect for parents who have homeschool kids, or even adults who are simply lifelong learners. Go to the AmericanHistoryPodcast.com, click on the linked picture on the sidebar, and you'll be ready to join. You'll find courses on, of course, history, but also economics, Latin American history, literature, rhetoric, and more, all of which are taught by fantastic professors I know and trust, people like Tom Woods, graduate of both Harvard and Columbia, as well as others like Robert Murphy, Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbner, and many other great scholars. Seriously, this is a fantastic site. If you're looking to finally learn the things they didn't teach in high school, but should have, unless I was your teacher, of course, this is the place for you. Again, be sure to enter the site via the link on our website, and we'll get a small finder's fee. It's a win-win for you and the show. Now back to the program. Thus, we get the idea of the boom, be it the boom of the 1920s or that of the early 2000s. It's a wasteful period. This is when the errors are made, thanks to the fact that the central bank has tampered with the free market. Think back to the stories in 2008-2009 about the housing bubble bust. There were homes in Detroit and Cleveland that were being sold for eh, maybe one-tenth of their value. This is the crisis, the point at which the economy is trying to purge itself of what Mises called malinvestment. It's trying to purge the waste and error of the boom period and reestablish more efficient lines of production. The economy is trying to return to the efficient service of consumers and their true desires. It's like the boom period was part of the evening you spent at the bar, drinking whiskey, living it up. Then the bust comes, and the bust is necessary. It's when your body purges all of that bad stuff. Thus, you understand the bust is actually a necessary thing and should not be delayed. Yes, it's harsh that miners or steel workers are being laid off, but as we saw in the Depression of 1920, the fact that they are laid off helps to push wages down, which then means they are hireable by entrepreneurs perhaps looking to get into the market. Maybe they'll have to take a temporary job, but in the end, the market's going to reset and get back to normal functioning. 
So let me put it like this. Maybe in town A, the unemployment rate jumps from 2% up to 12%. Those people need a job. They were making good money before, and they have skills. But the widget company is shuttered. They invested in a new factory and new equipment, but the mining company for whom they were going to make these new widgets cancels the order. Now, if this were the end of the story, it would be a tragedy. But this isn't the end. Adding labor onto the market pushes down the price of labor in this town. Now, perhaps an entrepreneur sees this and says, hmm, he moves in and purchases the factory and the equipment from the bank for far less than it would have cost, as it's a bankruptcy auction. The money saved means that he can do this. Now, he has a pool of labor to choose from, and the process starts again. However, this time, we don't have the bank screwing around with the interest rates. As I've said, the depression is necessary. It's the phase of recovery. Inefficient companies that were perhaps buoyed by the fake boom, they need to be liquidated or have their debt reduced. Inefficient projects must be liquidated and abandoned. The prices of the producer's goods, things like wage rates, the price of land and capital goods, all must be allowed to fall. In general, you will see unemployment increase as well as the number of bankruptcies, but this is only temporary. See the example of 1920 if you don't believe me. But the faster the economy can heal itself, the less painful it will be. But what if, say, a president asks companies not to purge the malinvestment? Unemployment will likely move from what Rothbard calls the frictional stage to the more severe stage. This is the result of wages being kept artificially high and prevented from falling. Quote, if wage rates are kept above the free market level that clears the demand for and supply of labor, laborers will remain permanently unemployed, end quote. Now he goes on to note that the greater the degree of the discrepancy, the more severe the crisis in the labor market. Now one of the aspects that we noted earlier was deflation, something that does not need to happen, but often does. Why? Because the inflation was achieved through the expansion of bank credit, i.e. loans. Thus, the spike in bankruptcies and financial difficulties means the banks start calling in their loans and contracting credit. Interest rates increase. Now, if the nation is on the gold standard, the banks have even more of an incentive for contracting credit. A gold drain to foreign countries, as happened in 1930, they needed to call in the loans. Add to this several business failures, and suddenly people start to think the banks themselves are not sound. And the fact is, they are not. Banks are inherently bankrupt. They don't keep all of your money in the vault. So the last thing the banks need are these sorts of questions being asked. But there's more. In a depression, there's an increase in demand for money. There are three reasons for this. Number one, people expect the prices to fall, and they want to hold more money and spend less, so they can get the goods when they are even cheaper. Number two, people have loans out. They want to pay them off, um, especially if they're being called in. And number three, the increase in bankruptcies makes business more cautious as they too start saving money. Now, while the depression or I should say, while the deflation is not a primary or inherent feature of depressions, economists, for the most part, take a gloomy view of it. But this is the wrong way to view this, as it can have positive effects. First, while some decry the idea of hoarding, notice there's no definition of, what, of this word. What do they mean by hoarding? What's the criteria they're using? How much of a cash balance con constitutes hoarding? As for the demand of money, that will decline again once the liquidation process is complete, and the economy is adjusted to consumers' true wants and desires. Overall, this deflationary aspect of the Depression is decried by economists. But Rothbard himself points out that 
Um, this is something that helps to speed up the overall recovery process. Quote, the adjustment consists, as we know, of a return to the desired consumption-saving pattern. Less adjustment is needed, however, if the time preferences themselves change, i.e., if savings increase and consumption relatively declines, end quote. What can help a depression is not more consumption contrary to what the Keynesians think. It's less consumption and more savings. Falling prices will encourage greater saving and a decrease in consumption. Um, during the inflationary period, business profits are exaggerated by the inflationary distortions created by the central bank. In a deflationary cycle, the illusion is reversed. What seems like losses may be profits for the company, since it's now cheaper to replace assets. Overstating losses, however, is going to encourage more savings. Now, by this point, it should be obvious that the Great Depression, initially, was caused by the Federal Reserve and its juicing of the interest rates in the 1920s. Benjamin Strong, the chairman of the New York branch of the Fed, even said at one point that they were going to give the economy a, quote, coup de whiskey, a jolt, if you will. This credit expansion distorted the function of the market and caused an unnatural boom. However, what made the Great Depression worse was what government did afterwards. By insisting that businesses ignore what the market was telling them, Hoover ensured things were going to get worse. Now, I think it's worth uh, looking at this in even greater detail. When it comes to a depression, the first rule is do not interfere with the market's adjustment process. The more the government attempts to delay the self-correcting nature of the market, the longer and more painful the depression will be. Government hampering simply aggravates and perpetuates the depression. But specifically, what did government do that prolonged the economic downturn and turn what could have been a simple readjustment into the Great Depression, an economic catastrophe that ended up lasting for well over a decade? There were at least six mistakes. First, they attempted to prevent or delay liquidation. The second one was that they engaged in a program of further inflation. This simply acts to block the much-needed fall in prices and the recession last longer. But it does more than that. It continues to create malinvestment and market distortion, all of which at some future point will themselves, uh, I should say, they will be liquidated. They must be liquidated. By preventing the interest rate from necessarily rising, government is sowing the seeds for more trouble in the future. Now, a third mistake is keeping wage rates up. I know it sounds humane, but in the end, this is a major error. In the end, this leads to a mass of permanent unemployed. This exact thing that we do not want to have happen. To make matters worse, when you have deflation, the propping up of wages means the real, rate, uh, the real wage rates are being pushed even higher. Couple this with falling business demand, and you have the formula for a greatly worsened employment or unemployment problem, as was the case during the Great Depression. Now, a fourth mistake was when Hoover and FDR tried to prop up prices. This led to surpluses of products that could not be sold, further hampering the ability of the economy to return to prosperity. This led to prices being higher than they needed to be. Remember, prices are always chasing equilibrium, the theoretical point at which the market clears itself. If you are propping up prices, then it means there isn't enough demand for the market to clear. You aren't helping business out by doing this. They will have inventory, which, is, which just doesn't sell because no one's willing to buy at those prices. They can't. The intentions behind this might have been good, but as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Now, the fifth mistake was trying to stimulate consumption and, at the same time, discourage people from saving. 
as you've already seen, you save to invest. Savings is not a bad thing. By encouraging consumption, you get a situation that aggravates the shortage of saved capital even more than it already is. When the government engages in things like relief payments and food stamp programs, it might mean well, but it's encouraging consumption. You also have problems when government increases taxes. Both of these things encourage consumption and discourage saving and investment. Remember, government spending is all about consumption. It is consumption. As Rothbard notes, quote, any increase in the relative size of government in the economy, therefore, shifts the societal consumption investment ratio in favor of consumption and prolongs the depression, end quote. Now, the sixth and final mistake we will cover is the subsidizing of unemployment. This might sound good. This actually prolongs unemployment in many cases indefinitely and at the same time slows down the shifting of workers from fields where jobs are unavailable into fields where they are available. Thus, all of these are the measures which, instead of helping the economy recover, actually ensure the depression will be longer. Oddly enough, they are both, uh, they are the time-honored responses to an economic collapse, and they are the policies adopted by both Hoover and FDR, and they are why the depression was the Great Depression. There is a link between the fact that Hoover and FDR, at the time of their interventions, were doing more to turn around an economic crash than any president in U.S. history And yet, oddly, nothing worked. Now, before I conclude, um, let's just look at a couple of the alternate theories, and then we'll review the one that I believe best fits the evidence. Now, first, you have the idea that it was the crazy free market which caused the Great Depression, and the New Deal pulled us out. This, again, is the orthodox view. It was even trumpeted by President Barack Obama in 2009 when he was touting his recovery plan. Further, Nobel Prize-winning economist Paul Krugman is a big believer in this one, and he constantly pushes it in his books and his column for the New York Times. Now, the basis for this, if you were not aware, is the worldview of John Maynard Keynes and his idea of aggregate demand. In this interpretation, the story is that the inherent excesses of naked capitalism caused the stock market to boom and then the crash of 1929. Businessmen then laid off workers who stopped buying products in a vicious downward spiral. Herbert Hoover, ever the believer in the free market, failed to intervene as he believed the federal government should not provide direct aid to the unemployed. Furthermore, uh, they believe it was his obstinate belief and perhaps devotion to the idea of a balanced budget that led him to raise taxes in 1932, just when the economy was in a precarious position. Thanks to FDR, the economy was on the road to recovery. It was the massive deficit spending, according to Keynesians, that rescued the American economy. As you're going to see, this is far from the truth. Now, a second explanation is that the market goes through ups and downs naturally, but it was the Federal Reserve that allowed the money supply to collapse in the early 1930s, and this turned a normal downturn into the Great Depression. This is a view proposed by Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz in their book, A Monetary History of the United States. Many modern free market fans believe in it because it places the blame for the Great Depression on the shoulders of incompetent bureaucrats. The most important follower of this in the current day is former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke. Those who follow this school of thought felt the correct thing for the Fed to do in 2008 was to cut interest rates as low as they could go, down to zero. Now, the last theory I want to discuss is the idea that the outdated gold standard caused the depression, as you will see, um, that one come up from time to time. 
Now, according to this theory, industrial economies were swept by a tidal wave of panic as depositors withdrew their money from the banking system, hunkering down and hoarding that money. The conventional wisdom says that, in such an environment, the thing to do is for the central banks to flood the market with newly printed money. This will offset the hoarding and prevent prices from falling. Sadly, though, the bankers' hands were tied by the gold standard, and they couldn't implement the right medication to solve the crisis, or gold might flow out of the country. However, this makes no sense. The classical gold standard had been in place for decades by 1930, but it suddenly failed. It had provided a truly golden era, sorry, I couldn't help myself, um, of smooth and efficient international trade. The problem was that the belligerents in World War I abandoned it when they were fighting, uh, when they fighting in the war began, except for the United States, of course. This then led to imbalances. Furthermore, the crash in, the 19, uh, in 1929 was not related to that, but instead to the decision of the Federal Reserve in 1927, egged on by Benjamin Strong of the New York branch, to bail out the Bank of England. The Fed ignored the rules of the gold standard and started inflating the supply of dollars instead of demanding that the British, who had set the exchange rates too high, devalue the pound or encourage price deflation by contracting their own supply. In the end, they had two choices. Deal with the festering dislocations caused by the British wartime inflation of their own currency or postpone the day of reckoning. They chose the latter. The burst of newly printed dollars solved the immediate crisis, but it also set into motion a market boom on Wall Street. Like any quick fix that ignores the fundamental problem, the decision to bail out the Bank of England only led to worse problems down the road. Okay, so to be clear before I end this episode, the cause of the Great Depression, it was the Federal Reserve which fueled the stock market boom of the 1920s with their easy money policy. Then, after the crash, they doubled down and made it worse by cutting interest rates and propping up institutions that were inevitably unsound. Then, both Hoover and FDR added to the mistakes by intervening in the economy. This turned a depression into the Great Depression. Now, this explanation is not just some crazy idea I came up with last night. Um, it's been associated with a wide variety of intellectuals and public figures, people like former Texas Congressman Ron Paul and investment manager Peter Schiff, and they got the ideas from Nobel laureate F.A. Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and Murray Rothbard, all of whom wrote extensively on the Austrian business cycle theory. The idea that a boom and bust cycle is inherent to capitalism, as these economists have shown, is incorrect. It's caused by the manipulation in the economy by government and or the central bank. According to this theory, the depression was made great not by falling mo the falling money supply of the 1930s. Instead, the problem was the injection of money into the credit markets during the boom period of the 1920s. Moreover, the meddling with the wage rates, first by Hoover and then by Roosevelt, prevented workers from moving to more sensible niches in the economy, thus guaranteeing a decade of massive unemployment. Now, of course, this leads to the question of why are these policies still used if they were an abject failure? Don't the policymakers know all of this? While the actually, actual politicians perhaps do not, the reality is economists do. Keynesians, for example, are well aware of the fact that the federal government engaged in massive deficit spending to end the Depression, but it coincided with chronic double-digit unemployment. Friedmanites, the followers of Milton Friedman, such as Ben Bernanke, are also aware of this history. So then why do people like Bernanke and Paul Krugman, a Keynesian economist who, as I said earlier, writes for the New York Times, 
continue to recommend the exact same policies to cure modern economic depressions like the one in 2008? The answer is that the Keynesian solution ends up giving more power to the government, and some people believe this is a good thing. Statists such as these believe the government manipulation of the economy makes it more rational, more just, or a better direct resource, uh, or that it better directs resources. Further, superficially, it appeared the government spending during World War II did indeed end the Depression. In their minds, it just took even more spending than what was done in the 1930s. They also say that these efforts meant the Great Depression was not as bad as it could have been. According to them, things were so bad, their enemies were just not able to change things quickly. It just took a while. That's all. Now, this is simply a rhetorical dodge. I hope you can see that. They ignore the fact that for over a century, the U.S. had seen economic downturns, but the free market always bounced back, usually within two years, and at most within five, and with far less pain and much less interference on the part of the government. Both the Hoover and the Roosevelt administrations, as you have seen with the former and will soon see with the latter, did something different, hoping the results would be different. They got those different results all right. They turned a depression into the Great Depression and took much of the world down with them. All right, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this bad boy as it is a bit long. Um, Thank you very much and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.